Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Eric Banks, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Wright State University. His new book, The Realistic Empiricism of Mach, James, and Russell, Neutral Monism Reconceived, is just out from Cambridge University Press. The Austrian physicist Ernst Mach, the American psychologist William James, and the British philosopher Bertrand Russell shared an interest in understanding and explaining the mind in naturalistic terms as a phenomenon that is not metaphysically distinct from the body, as Descartes argued. This basic commitment to materialism is the received view of mind today, but there remain many disputes about how exactly such phenomena as consciousness and thought can be understood in materialist terms. An underlying metaphysical question is how to interpret the material in materialism. The view which Mach, James, and Russell all defended is the idea that the material is neutral, that it is neither mental nor physical, but is instead manifested in ways that we would classify as physical or mental. In this innovative critical history, Banks presents the neutral modest movement as a whole for the first time, elaborating the contributions of each thinker to the overall view, which he calls realistic empiricism, and of which neutral monism is a critical part. He also extends and defends the view in two very important ways. He shows its validity and vibrancy as a contender in contemporary metaphysics of mind, and he also outlines some of the mathematical structural framework of the underlying neutral metaphysics. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Eric Banks. Are you there? Yeah, hi, Carrie. Uh, hi, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm very excited to talk about your new book today, The Realistic Empiricism of Mach, James, and Russell, um, which uh, presents and defends uh, you know, what's often thought of as the neutral modest position of using using Russell's label for it. Um, it's a position that he has, as you argue in the book, that, you know, he was thought to have held for a short time and then uh, abandoned. You show that that's not true. But you also kind of put it in the context of uh, both Mach and uh, Ernst Mach and um, William James and present them as a movement Right, these three figures from three different fields, you know, um, physics, physics, psychology, and philosophy, all combined in one book, um, presenting a um, a position uh, that you think is, you know, ought to be a contender today for the metaphysics of mind. Um, so let's just um, to start off the interview. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, how you got into philosophy. Um, and how you came to write this particular book. Uh, okay. Um, I don't know how far back we want to go. Uh, today, uh, I'm a professor out at uh, Wright State University in Dayton. And um, my interest is, is broadly described as, as history and philosophy of science. And I really sort of do mean those two things to, to, to go together. Sometimes that field is called HPS, you know, for short. Um, you know, uh, how I got into philosophy. I mean, I was one of those um, kind of science kids. Um, uh, I think it was maybe logic that, that kind of grabbed me. And uh, I went to uh, an undergraduate uh, institution where I could pretty much study what I wanted. And I kind of just jumped into analytic philosophy, Quine and Davidson and, and Kant and all sorts of things. Um, and then I um, 
I sort of got interested in philosophy of science again, which is you know where it all began for me. And Mach was that uh, was that figure. Um, so I won't go into the gory details, but um, when I was in graduate school at CUNY, I I sort of returned to Mach after many years, and I only really knew Mach's mechanics, um, which. Um, you know, is a is a great book if you if you know some physics and you want to get into the you know the the classical mechanics, the, the deeper details. Um Mach is a great place to start with that. So um I wrote my dissertation and my first book about Mach and it was called Ernst Mach's World Elements, a study in natural philosophy, and it appeared from Kluwer in two thousand and three. And um there was a chapter in that book about uh, other uh, neutral monists. So there was a, I think it was chapter nine of the first book, which had a section on James and Russell. Um, but my, uh, so I was aware that this movement existed, you know, for about 10 years. And it all sort of came together um, where I decided well, no one had really written about this, this movement as one whole thing. So, um, I knew that I could write a book about that, and then I realized that as I got more and more into this position, and this is what often happens in philosophy. I mean, you start out um, uh, pretty neutral, no pun intended, and then you kind of uh, you get uh, you get into the position, and you realize, hey, with a you know, this is uh, this is rather interesting. You know, maybe uh, maybe this can be pushed further. So, as you uh, correctly said, the the book. Um, has this kind of hybrid you know, I'm talking about the new book now mm. has this kind of hybrid nature I mean it has it has these um, these historical chapters in the early going where uh, because this is not a well-known movement in analytic philosophy uh, I felt that the whole thing had to be explained from scratch um, and I couldn't really take my first book uh, for granted in people's minds because um, uh, not not that many people read it. So, <laughs> well, Ernst Mach is a, is a you know acquired taste. I think for some very people. tough. Yeah, very very tough to read. And maybe we can talk about that later. But um, so and uh, the Mach was a, a scientist after all. So if you want to read Mach, you have to you have to go back and and look at all of these scientific controversies he was involved in. As a historian and philosopher of science, I love that stuff, you know. But uh, a contemporary analytic philosopher might have might have a, a lot of difficulty reading Mach uh, today. So anyway, um, the book has this has this kind of hybrid nature. It has this 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 historical movement that is that is center stage, and then. I would say the real subject of the book is realistic empiricism itself as a philosophical position. So once you do this kind of skullduggery and you unearth this, uh, you know, this position from the history of, of philosophy, um, then the next question is, uh, do you want to take this further? And I decided that the answer to that was yes. I wanted to see uh, what could be done in philosophy of mind and what could be done in philosophy of science uh, with the position. And so the last two chapters are really my own. Um, I gather from from some of the people who've read it that that uh, as as you as you phrased it, the philosophy of mind stuff is going to be more interesting to to philosophers today, because neutral monism is a is a, it is talked about. People, it's not a popular position by any means in in the metaphysics of mind, but it is something that comes up and people do know about it. So, um, if that's how people want to read the book, that's you know that's fine with me um i also think the last chapter on the on the philosophy of science and the um the metaphysics of event particulars um is something i put a, a a lot of work into myself but um that may not be as popular a topic okay um so you've used the term uh two labels there one one is that there's a movement here um, and another, you you introduced the use the term realistic empiricism, whereas you know I knew neut neutral monism is is the more is the it's the label. Let's just put it that that most people will be familiar with if they know anything at all. It's it's under that label. Um, so let me uh, kind of combine into one question: um, What is this? What? Why are these three figures? You know, what binds them together essentially as a movement, um, which can go under the name of either realistic empiricism 
or neutral monism. And if you have a preference for one of those labels, why would you prefer it? Okay. Um, the, the, let me take the, the last question first because I think it's the easiest one to answer. Uh, I see neutral monism for me is a, is a sort of subset of realistic empiricism. Uh, realistic empiricism is what I call the, the, you know, the overall position. Um, neutral monism is actually a, a term that was coined by Russell. Um, it was coined by Russell in a set of articles he wrote for the uh, for the Monist, the uh, the publication, in which he started out as a skeptic of the position. So um, it uh, it has this uh, it has this history. The term was not used by Mach, and it was not used by James. Mach's term for his position was something really awful, like imperio criticism. <laughs> James, a little better, radical empiricism. What does that mean? Uh, you know, who knows? Right. Um, so. Uh, I, I really decided I was not going to get caught up in this thicket of labels. Um, the neutral monist position I'll talk about in just a minute. Um, so what, what I wanted to say is the realistic empiricist movement is, in my mind, a kind of broadening of the classical empir- kind of British empiricism of, of Locke, Barclay, and Hume uh, into a realistic position. So the idea is that um, Mach broadened the idea of a sensation – as a as a you know mental or you know a, a subjective occurrence into a kind of objective uh, part of physical inquiry, a real physical event, and this kind of kicked off this movement towards broadening um, what was an empiricist view uh, into a realistic view of mind and nature, hyphens all the way through mind and nature. And what James added to that was the epistemic part, uh, a sort of direct realist theory of perception. And what Russell added to that was a theory of what he called the event particulars, where uh, there is in his two books the uh, well in in much of his uh, of his writing of this period, maybe 1913 to 1927, there's this use of a kind of general manifold of event particulars and their causal relations to each other that encompasses both the phenomena of mind and the phenomena of physics under this uh, you know general kind of event ontology and this kind of manifold conception. So the three kind of developments I'm calling all of that realistic empiricism Mm -hmm. and I'm going to leave the neutral monism to describe this this kind of narrower view of uh, what do you do with mental events if you're a if you're a physicalist or naturalist philosopher well this is the quote-unquote neutral monist answer to that so uh, let me let me take the other question so why is this a movement Um, well for one thing that's a historically accurate way to describe these three philosophers Um, Mach had an enormous influence on James and Russell directly Uh, that can be documented I'm not going to bore you with all the details of that but Mach and James were friends they met in in Prague and had this long like five-hour discussion about uh, psychology and metaphysics and everything under the sun and Russell, um, there, there is actually a passage in Russell's uh, analysis of matter where he says uh, that he considers himself to belong to a neutral modist movement inaugurated by Mach himself. So um, if it's good enough for Russell, it's good enough for me. And, <laughs> and uh, there are – so uh, on the historical side, I, I, I feel very strong that – Strongly that that's um, that that's established by the you know by the facts. Now the conceptual similarities are more interesting because there are there are obviously commonalities and there are also differences among these three philosophers. I mean, each one an incredibly independent thinker. So some of the some of the similarities um, they all have this view. Although they call these things different things, like Mach calls them the elements, James calls them pure experiences, Russell calls them event particulars. But they all believe that um, the proper naturalistic view, the proper view of nature, is a view of events. And maybe Russell's word is the best, particular events, particular happenings of some sort. You know, they are concrete, they really exist, but they're not like objects, they kind of come and go. so all three uh, philosophers hold some variant of that of that basic view of what there is. 
And then they also have this view that those event particulars are bound together with real relations, real causal functional relations. This is something that's really not known so so well that um, Mach has the view that the relations are just as real as the as the elements are themselves. This is not uh, David Hume warmed over. In other words, these are um, this is something that has to be taken, you know, as 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 part of the metaphysics of the view. James actually says you're not a, a radical empiricist unless you believe in in the reality of relations, along with the reality of uh, the pure experiences that are related by those relations. So James calls that a kind of concatenated uh, view of what exists. And then uh, Russell, who's often thought to be a you know a, a kind of empiricist um, philosopher in his later days, also has this view that the um, that the event particulars are bound together in perspectives, kind of like um, causal laws or laws of optics or um, projections of how these effects uh, interact with one another in a kind of mesh. So. That's another detail that I found in common. Uh, there are still others. I mean, we can go into some of them in more, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, later. But they all deny the fundamental, uh, you know, um, ego, as one might say. They have a view that the ego or consciousness, and maybe I'll use those words, uh, you know, um, interchangeably, that uh, there is such a thing as a kind of functional. Uh, aggregate of all the different sort of functional relations that we call mental memory association uh, you know uh, those sorts of things Um, but that the idea that the ego is somehow fundamental this view that you get from Brentano and and phenomenology and you know very much still a part of analytic philosophy's um, historical you know, a uh, set of concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, none of these philosophers take the ego to be fundamental. So um, that's a big, big difference with philosophers of mind today. Um, so I'll leave the rest for later. Um, but those are some of the historical and conceptual commonalities that uh, that make me very confident that these three guys belong to this movement together. Okay, so the the first of our of our trio then is is Mach, who is. Um you know, fascinating figure, and you've you've done a lot of your you know prior work has been focused on him in particular. Um, so let's start with his contribution to the overall uh, view, which you characterized just a little while ago in terms of sensation, mm-hmm. uh, and his view of sensations as an objective part of of physics. Uh, so he uses the term elements, um, and you say these are all, for all of them, they're events, and I want to get to that concept of an event uh, later on. But just to begin with some of the details of you know the first two chapters, what, are, what is Mach's view of these uh, sensation elements and the element function that sort of brings them all together? Um, how do these? How does this work? I mean, what's he's he's providing kind of the first, the first element, <laughs> no <laughs> pun intended, of the overall view. Okay, so how you know? Tell us about that. Okay, this is this is the 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 thing that that Russell thought um, where, where Russell thought Mach had made the essential breakthrough that 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 kicked all of this off. And I'm just going to read the quote from the analysis of sensations because it's so good. Um, So here's Mach speaking about the neutrality of the elements. He says, a color is a physical object as soon as we consider its dependence, for instance, upon its luminous source, upon other colors, upon temperature, upon spaces, and so forth. When we consider, however, its dependence upon the retina, it is a psychological object, a sensation. Not the subject matter, but the direction of our investigation is different in the two domains. It is only in their functional dependence that the elements are sensations. In another functional relation, they are at the same time physical objects. So this is the idea that when you talk about the difference between uh, – let's, let's use the example of a color. When you talk about the difference between the event of seeing blue as a sensation and as what Mach calls a physical event, 
What he says you're doing is you're taking the same neutral particular, the event of seeing blue, full stop, no qualification, and you're saying, well, if I'm talking about certain kinds of relations like, is this the same blue I saw yesterday? Or does this blue lead to a yellow after image? Um, or um, other sorts of, uh, of what he calls psychological or, or psychical relations. You're talking about a certain set of functions that the, the blue belongs to that connects it to other elements that we call the, the mental relations. But if you talk about um, the other physical events that can be connected with the blue, like the, you know, the, the uh, wavelength of the light or the condition of the uh, retina, the brain, uh, the, the cellular basis for seeing the blue, this same neutral particular belongs to that uh, row of functional relations as well. So the particulars themselves have no particular allegiance to being classed as mental sensations with those types of functional relations to other particulars or as physical events with those types of relations to other particulars. And that's what's really meant by the idea that sensations are neutral, that they shouldn't be automatically classed in the, in the, uh, in the slot of the mental and permanently segregated from uh, physical events. So it's very bold in one sense. He just says, I'm not going to do that. Now, then the next question that you that you want to ask is, well, you know, um, we don't often think of these of these sensory qualities as physical. I mean, we, we think of them. Yeah, they go on in the brain somehow or other, but they're not really part of the physical world because I don't know. I mean, they're are they made of atoms? Do they, you know, interact, you know, clearly with with other sorts of physical events? Um so the idea is that Mach is saying, yes, they are physical in any sense of physical you uh, you want to use simply by switching them over and concentrating on those variations. But uh, I think in a broadened sense of the physical. So this is very curious where and Russell uses this language, too, where you say, wait, are you? Are you saying that there are these two completely separate orders and it doesn't matter which order you put it into, but the ordering remains separate? Or are you saying that there's some sense of the physical or natural in which all of the elements and functional relations would someday be included within one area of study? And I strongly believe that the second reading is the correct one, that if we stop and say, well, these two orders are are these two kind of dualistic orders, the uh, – you know, the particular stuff is neutral, but the orderings are separate. I think then we end up with another kind of dualism, and that really isn't very interesting. But the, the sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just I was just trying to think of so a, a Davidsonian position. I mean, you had mentioned reading Davidson in your in your own personal history. Uh, a long time. Know, the Davidsonian position of anomalous monism, anomalous monism, not neutral monism. Yeah, is the idea that whatever you know, if you let's adopt the event particular language, which he's actually fine with, mm-hmm. and just say, well, you have mental events and you have physical events, or more precisely, you have physical events which can come under mental descriptions or physical descriptions. Right. So, but to clarify, because, how um, does your neutral monism? How does how does Mox view? You know, differ from that. Yeah, the anomalous monism. It's it's the anomalous part that doesn't fit with with the classical neutral monism. Uh, the idea is we're making progress towards a unified scientific view in which there would be no distinction between the physical variations and the mental variations. That they would belong to one sort of unified fabric, and these would remain as kind of separate, provisionally separate departments of inquiry. But they wouldn't represent hard and fast distinctions. Uh, between objects or between uh, uh, even conceptual distinctions, you know, between things. So um, this broadened sense of the physical that is used by Russell very often um, is, I think, the real way in which neutral monism is to be taken. It's worth pointing out, by the way, that um, this often happens when I explain the view. 
um, people say, well, I get the idea, you know, that this stuff is neutral, but if every sensation is a physical object, is every physical object a sensation? Because it's sort of, you know, it sounds like you could just, just flip that around. And the answer really is no. That be, and the reason is because there are elements that are not sensations, and all of them talk about it. Russell called them unsense sensibilia. Uh, James uh, sometimes talks about um, these sort of uh, elements of, uh, you know, of physical work uh, as opposed to elements of mental work. So he has this idea that force and energy are somehow involved here. And uh, Mach also, and this was really the subject of my first book because this was not known about Mach, that uh, Mach also has the idea that we have to fill out um, our sensations with other unobserved elements that sort of complete these functions within experience to further objects that may include unobserved elements outside of our direct experience. That's not a view that people know uh, that Mach held. And... uh, it's important because I think realistic empiricism does carry that idea that um, these uh, neutral things are not just sensations. They also that that sense of the physical has to be taken in the in a very full blooded way. I just want to read you another passage because the the position is almost never received that way in the history of philosophy, and that this goes all the way back to the to the beginning. Of all people, uh, Vladimir Lenin, the famous uh, revolutionary, wrote a book about Mach and uh, and the movement um, that he inaugurated all the way back in uh, the early 20th century. And this was his view of Mach's elements. I'll just read a little bit of this. Lenin says, Mach and Avenarius secretly, secretly smuggle in materialism by means of the word element which supposedly frees their theory of the one-sidedness of subjective idealism, supposedly permits the assumption that the mental is dependent on the retina nerves and so forth, and the assumption that the physical is independent of the human organism. In fact, of course, the trick with the word element is a wretched sophistry. For a materialist who reads Mach and Avenarius will immediately ask, what are the elements? Either the element is a sensation, as all imperial criticists, Mach, Avenarius, Petzl, etc., maintain, in which case your philosophy, gentlemen, is idealism, vainly seeking to hide the nakedness of its solipsism under the cloak of a more objective terminology, or the element is not a sensation, in which case absolutely no thought whatever is attached to the new term. It is merely an empty bauble. So that reading, I mean, this is a terrible, uh, you know, travesty of the of the kind of subtle position. And of course, Russell wasn't fooled because he read Mach, I think, the you know, the appropriate way, as did James. But most people, I think, read it the way Lenin read it, that, uh, well, elements are sensations. This is just this is just Hume Hume uh, all over again. And uh, we don't really need to worry about this. You know, this isn't a serious philosophy. So um, that's a, you know, that's a terrible shame. Um, Well, let me, let me just press for one minute. The, not so much that reading, which, you know, I, does seem um, not fair, but just the idea that you have these event particulars, which we haven't, which we need to go into more, that when they are in certain what you call causal functional relations um, are sensations, and when they are not, are not. Uh, and so it's true and pretty obvious, I should think, that not everything is a sensation. Uh, not every event particular is a sensation, simply because not every event particular will be in the right causal functional relationships that are required for it to be manifested as a sensation. Correct. But of course that means that, you know, any event particular could in could in theory be a sensation were it in the right nexus. Let's put it that way. I I think that's that's going a little too far. Okay. Um, where um I think there, you know, to, to take an extreme example, Russell uses the the star Sirius, and he says, uh, "What I mean by the existence of the star Sirius is all of these intercausal interactions that the star has, not only with observers on Earth and with human brains through the light that reaches the Earth, but through other objects uh, by streaming radiation and energy out into space itself, and all of these things sum total." 
are what I mean by the event particulars that make up the star Sirius, all of its interactions. And it's just obvious that some of these interactions, like in the middle of the star somewhere, um, will never be human sensations, uh-huh. uh, just by, by physical fact. Okay, but no, they couldn't be human. But the, I think the worry that that Lenin and perhaps other people, uh, even if they aren't sensations now, uh, there is the possibility. And, and I'm not saying that this is a terrible thing. I'm no. just saying that it seems to follow that um, if that event in the middle of Sirius were in the right causal functional relations, it would be a sensation. It would not be a human sensation, but it could be, a, I don't know, universe sensation or Milky Way oh, I, sensation I, I, or something to that effect, right? Well, at this point, we get into um, another uh, another debate whether neutral monism collapses into some kind of panpsychism. And right, this, which was something uh, I wanted to raise later. So maybe we should just talk about that now. Maybe we should because, <laughs> um, <laughs> or we can put it off. But it's up to you. Now, whenever somebody says "let's have the talk," I always say, "No, let's have let's have the talk now." Um, so I think um, I think that's a that that's a very uh, anthropocentric uh, view of the universe that. Um, that I don't think uh, realistic empiricism or neutral modism uh, lead us to adopt. In fact, I say a lot about that later in the in the chapter on philosophy of mind, where I deliberately separate the view from any form of panpsychism. There's no um, similarity between the elements in the heart of a star and what goes on in these complex events in human brains, except insofar as anything might be similar to anything. I mean, it's so empty as to just say, well, these things, this exists and this exists. And beyond that, there's no reason to call um, the, the, the event in the center of the star a, a sensation of the universe. That just doesn't say anything. Um, I will say one thing that I, I, I have some sympathy with your view because I do see the view as, a, as an empiricist position. And um, the argument goes as follows. Would you believe in an element that occurred without any possible kind of extrapolative causal relationship with the sorts of elements in our experience. So for example, the, in, in regards to Ernst Mach, this question came up um, in the subject of whether one believed in atoms at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, end of the 19th century. And um, Mach had a very bizarre view of atoms. Uh, he thought of them as, as little kind of Kantian Dinge an sich, where there could be no causal interaction with these things. And almost no one believed that, by the way, you know, at the time. But what Mach is saying as an empiricist is, yes, there are elements that do not, that cannot come into the ambit of my experience and become sensations. But they are causally connected with my sensations. Everything uh, that I want to believe in as an empiricist has some kind of causal relationship, however extrapolative that might be, um, however lengthy that or, or, or um, you know convoluted that causal chain might be. As long as there as continuity with experience is established. Mach is pretty much on board with that. Now, it's up to you as a scientist. You have to track down um, that connection and try to make uh, as much of nature accessible to experience as you possibly can. And Mach's own work as a scientist exhibits this, uh, you know, abundantly. So in that sense, I, I agree with you. The connection with experience is absolutely vital. But this idea of, of – um, of making everything an experience of some subject, whether that subject be the universe or the galaxy, um, is is just way crazy. You know, that's <laughs> well, just. I, I guess I was more thinking that the notion of sensation itself uh, is not a you know anthropocentric notion. At least it not, ought not to be, given the. You know, given what else Mach says, uh, or the neutral monist, 
the notion of n- sensation itself should be generalized and shouldn't just be thought of as the way humans experience things. Well, um, it, it, that's a bridge too far, I think, for 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 um, this position. I think the label we may be arguing about labels at this point, whether you hmm. want to call them sensations or elements. I mean, I prefer the neutral terminology of element mm-hmm. and. The sensation just seems to carry uh, too much baggage. Okay. Um, but uh, there are other reasons, which I think we should talk about later, why uh, neutral monism probably shouldn't be lumped together with uh, many of the panpsychist views. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, let's let's turn to James. Yeah. Uh, so that that chapter was. Um, uh, that's where you present his direct, the direct realist bit, um, the uh, anti—I should say anti-representational realism in some way. So, could you explain his um, his contribution to the view? Yeah, um, I I was not originally many many aspects of writing this book were unintentional. I just kind of followed the the argument, you know, where it led. And one place it led was to uh to James and his very interesting theory of perception. Um this is just just a fascinating uh, you know, story. Um James James and Mach J- James has this personal uh, you know, friendship with Mach. He reads Mach's books. Um, they're very, very strongly connected through professional psychology, something what what used to be called psychophysics, uh, still is in some quarters, right. um, where uh, Mach and James both made fundamental, you know, discoveries. And um, at a certain point in the in the in the eighteen nineties, uh, James starts to, you know, James is kind of like a planet on a really eccentric orbit, like the <laughs> kind of. Uh, you know, he started orbiting philosophy again. So he realizes that what Mach has said about neutral elements um, could be applied to a theory of knowledge in the following way. Uh, suppose that uh, a neutral particular can be classed both as, like the blue again, could be classed both as my sensation as and as a part of a real mind external physical object. Well, James says then my knowing of the blue my knowing of the of, of the object that is blue is not representative but immediate in the sense that the you know the piece of it the the neutral particular that is both sensation and physical element uh is directly perceived by me without intermediary and this is very important for james because he's uh setting himself against what you might call representative uh theories of perception and knowledge um, and this is the usual kind of, you know, 17th century theory that there's the external object that has all these primary qualities, doesn't have any any secondary qualities, interact, interacts with the brain in some way or other, produces this image. Um, and then the image kind of stands in for the object via this this either causal or just sort of representative relation. And James sees that neutral monism can be used as a, you know, um, as a way to break the the hold of that position. He then goes on, and what's uh, what's interesting about about James is he has this passage. It's very famous. It has to do with um, um, I've never actually been to Memorial Hall, but it's supposedly you know Memorial Hall at Harvard, which is uh, sort of uh, out the door and down the path somewhere from James's office. And he talks about what makes. Uh, what makes the uh, representation of Memorial Hall into a real perception of that object? What would count as, you know, is it the mental image? Well, I might have a mental image and then I get to the hall, I find out, wait, it doesn't have a a triangular roof. It has a square roof and, you know, the the windows are all in the wrong places. And then you have to revise your initial assumption that the image had any representative powers at all. So we're now talking about something different. This is about not just the immediate perception of sensations and neutral stuff as uh, both a part of my the knower's mind and the known object. We're talking about extending that outward towards uh, up what makes mental representations or what makes I, – I shouldn't even use that word – what makes uh, for the perception of an object. 
And James's answer is really interesting. It's a, you know, it's a causal theory of knowledge. And he has this great passage where he's talking about um, tigers in India. Mm. This is really famous, but I'm going to read it anyway because I like it so much. Um, He's talking here about Brentano and the idea of um, intentionality. Do, you know, do our uh, thoughts or perceptions intentionally refer to objects? In other words, are they the contents, you know, of, of those acts? And so he says, when you think about tigers in India, he says, uh, so I'll just quote here from James, the, uh, the um, paper is called The Knowing of Things Together from 19, uh, 1894. He says, most men would answer that what we mean by knowing the tigers is having them, however absent in body, become in some way present to our thought so that our knowledge of them is known as presence of our thought to them. A great mystery is usually made of this peculiar presence in absence. And the scholastic philosophy, which is only common sense grown pedantic, would explain it as a peculiar kind of existence called intentional inexistence of the tigers in our mind. Now, James ridicules this. So he goes on by saying, the pointing of our thought to the tigers is known simply and solely as a procession of mental associates and motor consequences that follow on the thought and would lead harmoniously if followed out into some ideal or real context, or even into the immediate presence of the tigers. It is known as our rejection of a jaguar if that beast were shown to us as a tiger, as assent to a genuine tiger if so shown. In all of this, there is no self-transcendency in our mental images taken by themselves. They are one physical fact, the tigers are another, and their pointing to the tigers is a perfectly commonsensical physical relation. I hope you may agree with me now that in representative knowledge there is no special inner mystery, but only an outer chain of physical or mental intermediaries connecting thought and thing. So what he's saying is we've mistaken uh, these real causal relationships between particulars that we happen to experience and the other particulars that we don't experience making up the object but causally connected to the object. And we've interpreted this via some uh, medieval scholastic woo-woo as uh, a real phenomenon of intentionality where it, all it really represents is the incompleteness of our subjective uh, mental you know, representations, perceptions, and the broadening of those perceptions into the genuine perception of an object. So what the chapter um, – what the chapter is about is, well, how do you do that? How do you broaden uh, these sensations into perception? What makes a sensation into a perception? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the argumentation is a little dense here, but I'll try to condense it by saying that it is only uh, in this broadened sense. So sensations taken by themselves are just these kinds of blobs and swiggles. I mean, they are real and they're even physical mental, if you like uh, the neutral monist language, but they're not perceptions of anything beyond themselves. They have no inner intentionality. They're just events. They occur. In order to broaden those, uh, those happenings, those sensations into the genuine perception of an object, you have to make a judgment. You almost have to make a kind of intellectual judgment that these sensations are embedded in a broader kind of perspectival network. So, for example, when you look at the at the room, this is another one of James's famous examples. You look around the room, you see the books and the chairs and, and all of this other stuff. And James says that you can directly perceive that you are in a room because if you're not, then these chairs and, and tables are only just blobs and squiggles. They'll still be there in the sense that, you know, the daubs of paint on a canvas make up a kind of a, you know, a flat pattern. But they won't actually be the perception of an object unless, unbeknownst to me, but maybe known later, that these sensations were embedded in these kind of perspectival relations such that the chairs actually have a back, which I can't see. That, you know, so let me, let me just um, ask a, a question at this point to, for clarification, as, as usual. Uh, the, so the sensation – and maybe we can – you know the theories of disjunctivism in philosophy of perception. Yes. Okay. Yes. So 
Is this a disjunctivist view? I I think not. Um, but I um, we'd have to we'd have to have a long argument about what disjunctivism really means. So the way I understand that is uh, here I am in the room. Uh, I don't know obviously whether I'm hallucinating or not, but I can assert a disjunction either. I'm just having these sensations of a room and not really in a room. Or should it turn out later that um, I am really in a room with objects, then I, I knock out the, the, the mistaken disjunct and I get to assert that I'm in a room with objects. So I, at, at any moment of time, I mean, this is, this is, it's interesting because, and I know you, you have this, uh, this discussion about kind of when, so there's, there's sensations which don't have this intentional relation. And by sensation, uh, we're talking about including thoughts and, and things like that. Yes, yeah, blobs and squiggles. Um, well, you know, thoughts about tigers in India. And then, I can have those thoughts, and there's no stimulus, obviously, in front of me of tigers in India. So there's no kind of causal relationship there. Um, but I can still have these. Well, this is uh, sort of the question. Yeah, that's the question. And yeah. I'm not going to agree with you there because okay. I think you can have the mental accompaniments of thoughts. I okay, mean, you that's really, right. I mean, one of these, I, I, I've actually had this dream. I don't know if other people listening have, but um, you have the dream that you're speaking a foreign language and you're getting away with it. You know, people are understanding you and you think to yourself, <laughs> it, you, you know, you realize in the dream, you know, wait a second, my French isn't this good, you know, um, <laughs> How am I getting away with this? And you realize maybe when you wake up that, um, wow, I mean, those syllables didn't, they didn't mean anything in French. That was, you know, that was completely, uh, I was, I was fooled by thinking I was forming French sentences. And really I was just forming these syllables and, 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 you know, getting away with the experience of thinking I speak French. And I think that's what the mental accompaniments of thoughts become on this view that um, unless your thoughts are really and truly connectable with something, the way that m the image of Memorial Hall, instead of just a swirl of colors, really has to be connected with the hall to be about the hall right. in any sense of aboutness. Um, so, yeah, uh, okay. Like, you get it. Okay, go, let's go. Well, I, I think I do. Um, so let me just uh, – so the idea is <sighs> – let, let me put it this way and, and clarify what I'm saying that's wrong. Uh, when, a lot of the debate here is, you know, the, in the Brentano terms that you, that you mentioned, is about this, you know, hocus pocus of intentional existence. I mean, in their terms, right? Um, and that has been a big puzzle. It is, you know, often thought of as the puzzle. Yes, it is. In, in, um, in, in, uh, at least intentionality, that aspect yeah. of philosophy it, of mind. It, okay. I, I, I'm not going to interrupt you, but if I just might say for a minute, when, huh. I, when I open a book on philosophy of mind, it's almost always about that. Yeah. It, yeah. It's um, how do thoughts have content? It, Correct. It's, and, it's, there's, and so the, as I understand it, basically what's being said here is that that, uh, that whole debate is based on an erroneous premise and the erroneous pre premise is that when we're having these so-called thoughts about tigers in india we're actually having a thought with that what we what we call this mental content um that's a mistake we're really not thinking about thoughts and of we're not really thinking about tigers in india unless i've got a tiger in front <laughs> of me and i'm in india Otherwise, no, no, no. I am I am undergoing a state which we incorrectly characterize with the same content description, but that's actually not quite correct. I mean, strictly speaking, it's not Harry, correct. Only, only if you're wrong. If you're right, mm. you still get to be right. It's just that when the when, you know when the proper connection is made, and James doesn't even think you have to go to India to make this connection. That uh, as long as there's a, a reasonable causal chain, here again is that idea that the extrapolative causal relationships you know establish these connections. Um, you'll be right. Your mental 
thought about the tiger in India is a thought about a tiger in India, if there's a tiger in India. But if it and turns I'm constantly out, connected to it. Yeah, but if it turns out not, then your thought was never about anything. It was simply this, the, the mental accompaniments of blobs and squiggles. And it's really the whole phenomenon of intentionality for James – and for Mach, and this is coming not not very long after Brentano uh, writes his book, A Psychology from an Empirical Standpoint. So this is, you know, they're criticizing him right, right, right in the, you know, and as a contemporary. Right. Um, the uh, so the the idea is that um, when you're right, these mental accompaniments become connected with the mind external object. And the mental representations become embedded in the perspectival structure of a room or of the world of objects out there. And then in reverse, that is what gave them their sense of reaching out to objects in your experience. But if it should turn out later that this is some kind of a hallucination, then they never had that phenomenology to begin with. Right. And we're mistaken in our introspective access. Correct. But you can also be right, yeah. in which case they have all of those features that you said they have. And James is one of the strongest defenders of that. He says when you're really in a room, you can feel you can reach out to these objects in this room and you are absolutely right to do so. Okay. Um, so, I mean, that's, what's kind of cool about this position. It is, it is cool, but l let me just raise one, uh, one problem. And then we probably want to get a little bit about Russell. Sure. Um, so you're sitting in a room, you're not in any way causally connected to tigers in India. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking a, I don't know, uh, some sort of deductive syllogism about tigers in India. And you're going through all these thought processes. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if there are tigers in India, then there are tigers. There are tigers in India, therefore. And now that looks to be a perfectly fine example, you know, particular instance of a, of a syllogism. Mm -hmm. And it seems on this view that, you know, if I'm not causally connected to tigers in India, you know, whether I know it now or not, or that um, I haven't really done anything, I haven't engaged in any real deductive logic because all I all that's been going on in my head have been a bunch of what you call just squiggles and what have you. But, you know, there's just been lots of event particulars there that don't add up to propositional thoughts. Well, the there's there's two things going on here. I mean, obviously, logical inference uh, could be about anything. So you can have all kinds of uh, elaborate deductive uh, structures and inferences about objects that don't exist. Right. Uh, OK. But, but still. When you say propositions, um, you start, you know, that then we're kind of in Russellian territory. I mean, what are what you know? What are these propositions? And is does does the word uh, does the concept proposition mean something outside of logic? Like, does that does that really connote the idea that um, thoughts have propositional content, no matter what, whether you know these objects to exist or not? Um, and I think the answer to that is 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 no. Um, but when you're in the the situation of just uh, being confronted with your blobs and squiggles as as events, I see no reason why you can't reason like this blob and squiggle is to the left of this blob and squiggle, which is to the left of this blob and squiggle. Mm -hmm. Therefore, blob and squiggle three is to the left yeah. of the left of blob and squiggle one. That's a perfectly valid inference, and it's about something in the sense that. <laughs> um, very minimal sense. Yeah, um, but it's not what I thought it was about. Right. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, I let's. Just, I mean, yeah. Go ahead. I know we have to go on, but I just wanted to say that um, one of the one of the helpful metaphors I have here is um, that uh, what what I think James properly reconstructed is saying is that sensations belong to the moment. Um, you know, you can have a sensation of a room and it can turn out to be a kind of breakaway movie set where, 
um, you know, behind the walls is, is nothing. And they've just kind of fooled you. The people in the windows are, are just these paper cutouts and stuff like that. Those are the kinds of things that sensations represent. Um, but perception has this intellectual component, which means that if, if a perception really is a perception, it belongs to, uh, a series of perspectives in space consisting of other objects, such as, you know, the chair really has a back. It's not just a picture of a chair. Um, and perspectives in time, I think, is the other important thing, that a judgment implicitly makes a kind of jump to this idea that in the future, I'll look back upon the judgment I'm making now and know that it wasn't just a uh, a sensation of blobs and squiggles. And I think that's the confusing aspect of the view that once it's taken on board, it becomes much, much less confusing. That um, you might say like a slice through a three-dimensional object is not a three-dimensional object. It's just a slice. And if you're saying that this slice is a slice through a sphere or something like that, um, you're saying that it's more than just a circle. It's part of a series, you know, of, of circles that make up the sphere. And that's what I mean by judging that this is my, this, uh, this circular slice is a perception of an object, most of which I don't immediately see. So, um, I'm going to leave it there. Um, okay. hey, read the book. Yeah. It's about this. <laughs> right. Um, so let's, I mean, we are, we're, starting to get a bit tight on time and I do want to make sure we get to Russell right on. Um, so let me just uh, you know the way you present Russell is as being sort of the most conflicted figure of the three regarding the position <laughs> um, uh, he never gave up as you put a, a representational view of of knowledge um, and this sort of left a cleft between him and then Mach and James on the other hand um, so can you you know, just briefly get tell us about his conversion to neutral monism, and then you know why it was never poor, what, pure, why it was problematic for him in a way that it was not for for James and Mach. Yeah. Okay. Um, just to just to reiterate that the you know the James Mach view is 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 a view I I call in the book a view of knowledge and error that. Uh, these these things like sensations either agree or don't agree with external objects. This is a causal relation. The same relations that lead to knowledge will also lead sometimes to error. As James says, sometimes you're you're led to a jaguar and not a you know and not a tiger. So this anti-representational theory of knowledge is what they really <clears throat> and what I consider part of the orthodox realistic empiricism view. Russell is not like this at all. Russell uh, begins as a skeptic of neutral monism. He almost always accepted the idea of the the neutral uh, sensation. He says it uh, as early as 1912 um, when uh, he talks about his sense data before he's even given up the idea that there are sense data. He says that uh, the sense datum is neither physical nor mental. It is, you know, it's neutral. And he, he's taken that part of the view on board and always did. When he goes to formulate um, his theory of knowledge in 1913, 1914, he's hooked on this theory of acquaintance, which is a, you know, a Brentano-esque view that you must make some allowance for the idea that particulars when perceived by a mind uh, come into a special relation of acquaintance to that mind and that all other acts are knowledge, belief, uh, you know, are uh, based upon this basic notion of, of acquaintance. Now, in 1919, Russell gives that view up after this very, very uh, lengthy battle with Wittgenstein and, you know, with himself, where he finds out that a theory of knowledge like that is, is just not going to work. Um, so <clears throat> in the wreckage of this theory of knowledge project, he decides to go back and say, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe there's something to neutral monism after all. And he writes this article in 1919 called uh, Propositions on what they are and how they mean. <clears throat> and you can already see in the title that he hasn't quite given up on the idea that knowledge is some kind of relation of belief in a proposition that can then relate to a fact, true or false. And so this is not the way that the other two think of knowledge that knowledge and error proceed along exactly the same causal paths. There's nothing 
accept the, you know, the termination of that path to determine which one you're on. And Russell has this, this idea of knowledge that no, there has to be kind of a, an intermediary thing. He thinks it's made up of mental images by 1919, that there's a belief in a certain kind of concatenation of mental images. And then these images have some sort of relation of truth and falsity to facts. Russell's a what we would call today a correspondence theorist. And what Russell says is really interesting. He's um, now James and, and Mock have no trouble with false belief. False belief is just non-agreement. It's just when you get to India and you find out, whoops, we were supposed to go on the tiger tour and we're on, we're, we're in some other country and we're on the Jaguar tour. Well, that's not good. Um, so I guess, you know, I guess we were wrong about, about where we were headed. Russell is saying that, um, now, it, it, it doesn't sound so bad that, you know, the correspondence of propositions with facts until you start thinking about false beliefs. So what is it when you believe falsely? Well, if let's say P is a proposition that, you know, it turns out to be true and, and uh, you know, properly correlated and all that. What is it to believe and not be? Well, it's belief in the fact that things are not that way. But there is no such fact. So what would those that concatenation of mental images like uh, in the novel uh, 1984, when Winston Smith believes whatever it is that two plus two is five, you know, mm -hmm. um, what is it that he believes falsely that two plus two is five? But there is no there, there's no possibility that you could believe that because there's no possibility that things could be like that. So Russell has this and, and this is still after the neutral monist conversion. I'm just going to read this funny passage because it's uh, this is from the philosophy of logical atomism. Russell says, you will notice that whenever one gets to really close quarters with the theory of error, that's the puzzle of how to deal with error without assuming the existence of the non-existent. I mean that every theory of error sooner or later wrecks itself by assuming the existence of the non-existent. Now, you know, that's a dyed-in-the-wool correspondence theory that even has correspondences for false facts. And I think that's just not neutral monist in, 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 any, in any sense of the word. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think Mach and, and, uh, and James are, are, are way ahead here in the sense that they already see a kind, of, a, a kind of causal theory of knowledge taking place, although they do much less to articulate it. I must say, even when Russell decides he's wrong, it's only because he's worked out uh, in, in excruciating detail – uh, the problems with the wrong position, something that I, I can't really say of, of, of Mock and James all the time. Mm -hmm. but in, you know, in defense of, of Russell, he's the third man in the triumvirate here who really builds the, the event particular into a kind of general physical manifold. Russell is supremely confident in the details of relativity and all sorts of, of, of um, you know, he even knows about, about quantum theory very early, too. Like, like, I think he must have read the original papers in 1925, 1927. Um, and he's already trying to build a kind of unified manifold for physics and psychology based on the notion of the event particular. So, um, you know, kudos to Russell for having the sophistication, the ability to articulate um, this philosophical view and try to bring it the rest of the way towards a real unified view of, of events in physics and events in, in brains, events in minds. Um, and that is a fascinating topic. And unfortunately, um, we're out of time. Uh, so, um, you know, I wanted to talk a bit more about event particulars and and uh and then also the you know at the end where you talk about your what you call enhanced physicalism uh which is your contemporary interpretation you're pushing the neutral monist view a bit forward um so i guess if you can say something maybe briefly about that for a, for a minute um minute or two and and then i think we'll have to wrap it up Okay, I, I can't obviously, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but I what I will say is um, if you're if you're still listening, if you're sort of on this train, um, then uh, the last two chapters of the book are an attempt to articulate uh, realistic empiricism as a contemporary view in the metaphysics of mind 
that is not an epiphenomenalist view or a panpsychist view, and which differs from other neutral monist views in the philosophy of mind, and I think has a lot more in common with the classic views of uh, Mock James and Russell. Not in the sense that I just sort of slavishly follow them. I mean, I do make changes, and I try to logically articulate uh, a lot of the assumptions and make some of my own arguments in there. Mm-hmm. But um, I think my view is the you know is is more like the direct descendant um, of the of the historical ancestor than a lot of the views that are out there today, which do seem to me very phenomenalistic and very uh, panpsychist by comparison. Mm-hmm. So I'll leave. That's the you know that's the chapter on philosophy of mind and the chapter on the you know the last chapter is kind of an attempt to be a, a contemporary Russillian and do something with these event particulars uh, with uh, the added device of uh, Grassmann algebra, which is some uh, which is some mathematics that I've uh, that I've kind of happened upon, which seems. Uh, very, you know, uncannily uh, appropriate to articulating some of the features of my view in mathematical terms. So beyond the sort of bare and austere uh, element and function ontology of, of especially of Mach, um, I'm trying to add in chapter six some some meat on the bones by uh, taking, a, a, you know, articulating the view within mathematics. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll have to leave that there. Um yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like you have a couple of projects, perhaps, you know, already working on next. Are you uh, developing either of the last two chapters, or are you just turning your attention to something else at this point? Well, yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, I'm I'm fortunate enough to you know to be on a research leave this year, and I've been. Uh, it's uh, the chapter six. I'm developing into a more. Ex- uh, articulated project called extension theory, which uh, will be a, a, a further articulation of the Grassmann algebra um, and the problem of extension. I mean, how do you construct extended mm-hmm. physics fields and objects from from event particulars and their and their causal functional relations? So um, that's uh, something I look forward to, to working harder on. Great. So, uh, well, we are out of time, um, but I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. Me too. Um, and uh, good luck with your with the book on um, or a book or whatever comes out with uh, extension theory. Thank you so much. Okay. Goodbye. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Eric Banks, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Wright State University. We've been talking about his new book, The Realistic Empiricism of Mach, James, and Russell, Neutral Monism Reconceived, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.